0: It's a slightly weird thought that you look at sort of pictures of football matches and (laughs) parties and you see all these people close together, it does make you think, Oh my goodness, that's just the total vector of (laughs) disease.
1: There we go. That's the sound of an evening beer being cracked open, which feels like a very apt way to begin (laughs) series two. (laughs) Welcome back ladies and gentlemen very exciting announcements from Pint of Science HQ the Pint of Science podcast is back for series
2: two hello Jim hello yes it is indeed we are back with more pints of science for you In we certainly
1: are we'll be bringing you more consistent episodes over the coming weeks we've done a few specials over the last few months but now we're hopefully back for uh, a relatively decent stretch of time we all find ourselves with a lot more free time on our hands uh as we are in the midst of the bizarre coronavirus lockdown.
2: Yes, indeed. Yeah, for if, for those of you listening in the future, this was recorded in uh, April of uh, 2020, at a point where more or less most people in the world were having to stay at home and uh, socially distance themselves from everyone around them for basically everyone's safety. And this is the world in which we have been recording these podcasts.
1: That's right. I realise I somewhat foolishly said that uh, everyone finds themselves with a lot more free time that's not true podcast makers find themselves with a lot more free time a lot of people are extremely busy right now Yeah, um, very true. so we've had a extremely interesting chat in this week's episode which um, i can't wait to share with you guys uh, we caught up with behavioral scientist nick chater who is very well placed to comment on the bizarre amount of changes people have had to make to their lifestyles in the last few weeks Uh, all over the world people are having to socially distance so keep at least uh, two meters away from other people they're having to only leave their houses for uh, specific purposes like exercise shopping varies from country to country but here in the uk it's pretty much that and one bit of exercise a day is that right jim
2: Uh, yeah that is right so you're allowed to leave the house for food exercise and to go to work if you're a key worker other than that, you should not leave the house or have any contact with anyone outside of your immediate household. So, yeah, huge behavioural changes that have been made in a, a really short space of time. And, uh, yeah, we spoke to Nick and as, as he would be the perfect person to explain the science behind some of these behavioural changes. Nick is head of Warwick's Behavioural Science Group. He's a member of the UK Committee on Climate Change, and he's co-founder and director of research consultancy Decision Technology. His book, The Mind is Flat, The Remarkable Shallowness of the Improvising Brain, was released in 2018, and he is also on the Academic Advisory Board for the government's Behavioural Insights Team, more widely known as the Nudge Unit. He recently signed an open letter from nearly 700 behavioural scientists calling for the UK government to rethink its previous policy on COVID-19, including its aim to avoid behavioural fatigue from the general public. Uh, and I think behavioural fatigue is where we'll pick it up with Nick.
1: I hope you all enjoy this first episode of Series 2. We'll be back at the end to give you some updates on the festival itself. Uh, until then, enjoy a delicious pint of science with Professor Nick Chater.
0: Yeah, I think the thing about behavioural fatigue as a concept is it it really depends what kind of behaviour it is and why people are doing it. So, um, I mean, for something like... Um, having to, uh, for example, uh, brush your teeth every day, you might think, getting people to do this, you know, day after day, I mean, twice a day for a whole <laughs> lifetime, it's impossible. Um, it's just you know, incredibly tedious. And you, what, what does it give you? Um, you know, except for some very, very long-term you know, tooth benefit. Uh, but in fact, actually, it turns out we can we can manage it perfectly well, and most of us um, find it a perfectly acceptable habit, which we just don't think about. Or putting your rubbish out in, in uh, recycling bins. I mean, that's something... You know, it's not done perfectly, but it's pretty stable. Um, you know, this is something that the behaviour that's been going on for years. It doesn't seem to be getting any worse, particularly as far as I'm aware. Now, you know, there are lots of things we do get bored with. Um, going to the gym, for example, is famously something that some people stick at um, doggedly for for years on end and 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 uh, have no trouble with. And other people do it for a bit after New Year and then immediately crash out and they're never seen there again. And you know, they're just behaviours of all different kinds, all different types of people, all different kinds of motivations. Some are sticky, some aren't. There's just no answer to the question in general. How long can mm. somebody do any behaviour and will they get tired? And I think the motivation is really critical here. I think, what, in fact, I think the lockdown has been amazingly successful in the UK in terms of behavioural take-up. And I think one reason is that it's a very high sense of recognition of why it's important. It's clear that there's a total peril for the NHS and large numbers of vulnerable people if we don't do this. Then people will continue to do it, possibly not limitlessly, but not so much because of behavioural fatigue, but because of the other, you know, other impacts it's going to be having on on people's livelihoods and and uh, and well being in other ways. But I think there's just a, it's just kind of a misconception to think. If you try to do anything a lot, you're just gonna get tired. So you better yeah. not to start too soon. But there's another thing I wanted to say that's worth saying too, which is I think the the conception um that we don't want to lock down too soon because behavioral fatigue will kick in is also misconceived in a completely different way, um, which is that if you if you're trying to if you are trying to suppress the virus, then the sooner you start, the sooner it's gonna be over. and um, because you've just got less virus to suppress. So very much like a fire. Um, if you if you uh, want to suppress a fire, it's a really good idea to start when it's small and it'll be <laughs> a quicker process. If you start, you let it burn for a while. There's no point in thinking, well, there's no point in rushing in with all the fire extinguishers. We need to let this thing burn for a while. And then when it's really worthwhile, we'll get the fire extinguishers out. that quicker. That's clearly a, a, a crazy view. But unfortunately, that... I think it's, it's sort of what we've actually done inadvertently. So I think I think there's something. Sort of, so even if you believed in behavioral t- fatigue, and I think there's, I don't think it's unreasonable to say, you know, being locked down for a long time is bad, and we don't want to, to, to have to keep ourselves locked down more than we have to. Then that's an argument for going in hard early.
1: I'm interested in, in behavioral fatigue fr- from a scientific perspective as a behavioral scientist. Is there much mm. published information on behavioral fatigue? Because as Jim says, intuitively, it sounds like something that. I know you just listed some great examples of, of um, situations where it does and doesn't apply. But is there much published literature on, on previous epidemics where people have had to enact these kind of measures? Uh, has anyone kind of studied it formally?
0: No, I, d- I don't think they have really. I mean, there's certainly lots of work on trying to get people to change habits um, and which habits stick and which habits don't, and it's not particularly well understood which ones do stick and which ones don't. But for example, one thing that's uh, there's been a lot of work on is trying to get um, medical professionals to wash their hands more. We're worrying about, um, in former times, bugs like MRSA. So that is actually really, really difficult to do, and 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 I think there is fatigue there. I mean, whether fatigue is quite the right concept, I'm not sure, but that if you're trying to get somebody to do something uh, repetitive and boring, and it makes their life just generally harder because they have to keep you know, breaking away from the task they're in to wash their hands and wash their hands again. And then you know, five minutes later, they're changing to another patient, have to do it again. I and mean, these kind of annoying uh, things that clog up one's life, trying to get people to do those things does seem to be difficult, whereas other types of behavior seem to be remarkably easy to, to, to get people to switch to. I mean, I don't think in relation to pandemics, as far as I'm aware, there's no 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 particular study of this. Um, but but just in general, that the concept of behavioral fatigue isn't really a concept i've seen in, in um, psychology or behavioral science you know, there's no standard story about you know behavior when you get tired of behavior it's just a too general a category really but what there is is lots of work on specific behaviors and which ones it's easy to make habitual and which ones it's the, 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 that that's difficult to make habitual and i mean there are some you know some generalizations out there but they're not you know, they're not very clear and, and you know for example if you if you want something to stick then a really good idea is for it to have some immediate positive benefit. But cleaning your teeth is a lot better if you have a nice minty to, uh, flavored toothpaste because it's actually quite pleasant and you feel like your mouth is feeling cleansed. <laughs> if you have to use some rather grim and unpleasant toothpaste, um, <laughs> just to, you know, if, if it just turned out that's the only way the thing would work, then that would be tricky.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. And it seems like there might be a balance between benefit versus disruption. If something's really beneficial, I don't know, if you did this thing, it would may- mean that you live for 10 years longer. Even if it was a bit hard, I think people would be really, you know, people would go for it. I mean, with exercise, for example. But if there was no perceived benefit, disruption seems to be the, the thing that would stop people doing something. <laughs>
1: It's interesting that you say that because, I mean, what what occurred to me when you were listing your examples there, Nick, was that the ones that sounded easier to motivate people with were situations where the immediate benefit was really, really clear. So, for example, you said toothbrushing. Now, I think when I I brush my teeth, you know, I'm very proud to say I brush them several times a day. And (laughs) um, the reason I do that is not really, I don't think the kind of longer term benefit to my dental health I'm aware that's a fringe benefit but it's mainly just the kind of social I don't want to go out and feel like people might think I'm gross for not having brushed my teeth you know there's an immediate (laughs) potential risk to me there whereas the gym which you mentioned as a counter example you know that is kind of famously something you have to put in quite a lot of work to see slow gradual gains and I guess what I'm thinking I, I actually feel like the The pandemic situation is more comparable to that in a way because we're not unless you are a very vulnerable elderly person who might contract the disease and and become very seriously unwell maybe it's a little harder to get people to appreciate the the immediate threat.
0: I think that's right and of course that's also particularly challenging because there's a a delayed uh, impact of the um, spreading of the disease and the the the, the bad effects on other people and oneself so you, you obviously can engage in non-social distance behavior for a long time, thinking this is absolutely fine, <laughs> nothing bad happened to me. And then you can get it. And maybe it won't even be that bad for you, but then you might give it to someone else for whom it is bad. And that's another long delay. And And of course, this creates, a, it creates problems for us So, in, in terms of if we, if, we, if we were trying to solve the problem of reducing the spread of, of this virus without sort of coordinated political messaging and action, it would be incredibly hard. Because we'd be looking around, thinking, "Well, nothing seems to be nothing bad seems to be going on." Let's just keep going until yeah. um, you know, disaster strikes. So this, the delayed action is really tricky. Yeah, the other thing that's worth pointing out, and I think the uh, the contrast between the point you make about toothbrushing and you know, the gr- grossness in the eyes of others, I think this is really crucial. So I think one thing that makes behaviours much easier to enforce on oneself is a sense that we're all doing it. And I've kind of. Mm. Kind of- I should do it I and mean, it's not that i feel i oughtn't to be doing it but i sort of shouldn't do it but also other people will be picking me up if i'm not doing it so this is like sort of recycling your rubbish so yeah you feel you feel you should do it but also you kind of think um if you just dump all your rubbish in a, in a heap then that <laughs> kind of is obviously a bad thing other people will notice that bad behavior other people you're living with or other people in your neighborhood um so and, and of course you can also see other people are doing it you know, There they are you know, Sort of carefully sorting their rubbish and sticking it in the different bins. And so there's this sort of sense of both social support and social pressure. Yeah. In the case of social distancing, I think we really do have that. So you can you if you if you think, damn it, I'm just gonna stand really, really close to all kinds of random people, they're gonna be moving away from you <laughs> and if you're if, if you're yeah, out, out, out and about with people who obviously aren't in your family other people will be looking at you thinking what the hell are you doing this is you know this is this is a, a, a totally inappropriate and i think this is this is a really key point i think it makes it much easier for us because we're signaling all the time as we, we when we do venture out of our houses and we carefully avoid each other with two, two meters distance we're still sort of signaling we are taking this seriously you're taking this seriously i'm taking this seriously this is we're all in this together and I think that makes it much easier for us to, to, to grasp, this is something we've got to do. But I think the thing that tends to miss out is that there's a completely different set of motivations that we have, which isn't really about uh, doing things because of the consequences of the actions we're doing, but it's what um, political scientists and some so other social scientists call lo- the, the, not the logic of consequences, not doing things because because of their consequences, it's the logic of appropriateness. And the idea here is that a lot of human behaviour is actually driven by thinking... Yeah, what am I supposed to do? I've got to do that. That's the thing. I'm, that's the thing I want to do. Is the thing I'm supposed to do. What What is the appropriate thing to do? And now the appropriate thing to do is to be two meters away from people and to stay in your house. And so most of us are thinking, well, whatever the consequences, you know, I, I can't work out the, the actual risks. But the, what I'm supposed, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I sh- and I know what other people are supposed to do, and we should all do it. Um, and that you know that's a major drive of, of social behavior, and and you know in almost everything we do. the fact that we sort of wear the we wear the same clothes as each other, and we yes, and we stand in normal normal life, we stand equal distances from each other. We don't stand really close to people or miles away. Or you know, there's all kinds of uh, norms that we have, which we don't really have a justification for. They're just what we do, and doing things that are just weird or just you know, not the appropriate thing. Is something that we're all uncomfortable with. So what you're trying to do. If you're, if you're trying to, to combat this virus as a, as a policymaker, I think, what you should be trying to do is thinking, what are the new norms? You know, what, what's the way we should behave now? And and why it's helpful is not that important in detail. I mean, the fact, that, obviously, you've got to set up norms that actually do help. That would be silly to set up norms that were, were irrelevant. But we as citizens are not really worrying too much about exactly which is the most important and exactly what's the risk of standing one and a half meters away from somebody or whatever. What we're, What we're really more interested in is what's the new social rules and how should, and, and how do I conform with them? And then, you know, if, I, if if we long to be very clear what those rules are, then we're fine. And people in, in the UK, and I think actually in lots of parts of the world, have been remarkably um, remarkably adept at picking up those norms and, and running with them.
2: It seems to have shifted very quickly. And you'd think that something like, yeah, social norms would be sort of quite inflexible, but they seem to have moved, yeah, very rapidly in this case.
0: I think that's very, very interesting and actually quite surprising, um, I think one of the reasons it was very hard to uh to implement a lockdown in the first place is that it just seems inconceivable that people will stand for it and I can quite imagine if you went back two or three months and were thinking this, this pandemic this could be a real pandemic and it could get pretty serious and you know, maybe, you know, should we consider the possibility in some you know, sort of scenario planning kind of context, should we consider the possibility of a lockdown? And I can totally imagine people very hmm. reasonably thinking, well, that's just completely beyond the pale. No one will go for that. That's just, you know, just hmm. politically feasible because it, because you're in, you know, it really infringing people's liberties and their normal patterns of behavior in a dramatic way. Yeah. One way that I think it's very useful to think about this is in terms of um, what political theorists call the social contract um, so you have this sort of implicit deal, implicit bargain between you and other people and society at large. And then the terms of that deal are you know, a bit vague, but they basically <laughs> are, are, you've got to just behave like a sensible citizen doing the things that you know, citizens are supposed to do. So it's like no breaking the law and you know, no wildly unsocial behavior and exactly what, you know, what what's in and what's out is a little bit unclear, but most of us, most of the time, you know, we we follow it. Now, the thing about social contracts or any, any kind of uh, contract is that, People will will abide by it if they think it's reasonable. As soon as they think it's unfair or silly, then they absolutely won't. So if you try to introduce a, a rule which says, you know, we're going to, for no particularly clear reason, enforce people staying at home every you know, Sunday or something um, for, for just for sort of no particular reason or just for some sort of um, idea that we should keep time for every family so we're going to introduce this there would be outrage absolutely it wouldn't be absurd people would be you know violating all over the place um, because they wouldn't see that they wouldn't feel there was a, a justification you know any kind of agreement is only as good as the buy-in it has of its participants And what is really very impressive and very interesting is that where we have collectively agreed as a society, now this really is important, we've really got to squash this virus, we have been able to actually change our behaviour remarkably. We've We've been able to say, okay, the old contract was we can go about freely doing our own thing, that doesn't make sense in this situation. We all buy into the fact we've got to change, not for that long, hopefully, but we've really got to change our behavior, and we're, we're happy to do it. And indeed, you know, it's uh, it's been you know, very well adhered to.
1: So that ties nicely into, I, I was thinking as, as a leader, someone whose job it is to kind of change those social norms, what are the key things you're doing to try and make this transition to a new social norm? As smooth and as rapid as possible.
0: So, one is being extremely clear what the norms are. And that's actually surprisingly difficult. And people are always complaining about it. And I don't, not necessarily all that fairly. Um, so, the, the, the sort of question of you're not supposed to go out with people who are outside, outside your own household. That's the kind of thing that you're there's endless kind of people thinking well you know can i actually can i go for a run with my friend if we're you've know, some distance away from each other that's surely fine isn't it i think possibly the answer is it isn't and you know, there's all kinds of questions about exactly you know, who counts as your household and if i'm going to to to, to, to deliver a meal to an elderly parent or grandparent you know, does that count i mean there's all these kind of fuzzy cases that people immediately jump on and it takes a while for for, for, for those kind of um, uncertainties to settle down or indeed just to turn down not to matter very much. A lot of them don't matter. But this is why I think it's really useful to think of it as a contract. Because it's a bit like someone's getting you to sign up to a, an agreement about you know, a new job or buying a house or something. And you're looking through the contract and thinking, yeah, but what does this mean? And you know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm not, I'm not sure what that's gonna, um, I want to sign up to this. But there's a, there's a process of sort of thrashing about trying to work out what the details are. And of course, any, con- any deal that is going to be explicable you know, a relatively small number of words um, in, in, a, in a series of sound bites on the radio or TV is not going to have full detail, and and some of that detail won't be thought, thought through. But the most important thing is to get the core messages clear, clear enough that people are more or less um, able to, to to follow after a bit of jiggling around and uncertainty. So that's the first thing, and I think actually people are pretty clear about most of the things that matter. And the other thing is that. You've got to, and I think that, again, this is really touching what we were talking about before. You've got to give people a very clear sense of why it's important, not why individual aspects of the behaviour are important. But that's not particularly important. So if you say, "Yeah, you know, why, why is washing, washing my hands important?" Oh, it's something to do with the, you know, the, the, the soap actually breaks up the structure of the virus or something. Yeah, but it, it, that's not so crucial. I don't have to know exactly what the mechanism is, how exactly how effective it is, how effective it is compared you know, to use. Yeah, hand wash versus soap. That's not that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is thinking I've got to do X, Y, and Z. These are the new rules. And if I follow, if we all follow these, this will suppress this virus. So it's the important thing is having an overall sense of what we're trying to achieve, not worrying about the individual details. So it's not like we all need to have a course in uh, so epidemiology, um, but we do have to have a sense of why this why this matters. So I think it's really yeah, it's giving a very clear reason for why we need to do these things and just being very clear what they are that's, you know, that's the essence of it. And to,
1: to what extent do you think the leaders who are in charge of putting out these messages following their own advice is important? How much do we use like figureheads <laughs> as inspiration to behave a certain way ourselves? Because
2: we did have, there has been a couple of cases of, I think in it was the head of public health in Scotland that had to resign because they had been visiting their second home, etc.
1: Or do you think we're more concerned with, as you were saying before, the kind of our reputation amongst our immediate peers.
0: Yeah, I think I think we are concerned with our much more concerned with our reputation amongst our immediate peers. But I think the reason leaders matter and leaders following the rules matters is that they're signalling is this really important or not. If you say face masks are a really good idea, and obviously in the UK we haven't made a decision about this and I, I have no no scientific knowledge about the, the virtues of face masks. But if you're in a country like America where it has been, at least for some circumstances, recommended then if your leader doesn't do it then you tend to suspect i think as a member of the public well none of us are going to take this too seriously because it's obviously not that important is it because look you know, here's my leader not 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 paying any attention and then there obviously is a, a concern about hypocrisy and people find you know, it's very annoying to think that somebody telling you to do something isn't doing it themselves but i think the thing that's really damaging is it makes you everybody think oh we're, we're not going to no one else is going to take this seriously and they probably shouldn't because it, it's not really important it's a you know, it, it it basically gives away the fact that they're just saying it. Mm. Um, I think it's actually really crucial that that leaders do what they're that they're saying other people should do, and where they don't, that they are you know, clearly reprimanded for not doing so. Otherwise, the message to all of us is, well, don't worry too much; not that important. Um, I don't, you know, I, I'm just telling you this, but relax. And that's not the message that we want to have at all.
2: You said the the main message that the government have been putting across, um, which said they've been doing well is that, you know, it's stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. That's a very obvious, you know, sort of it's a it's a shove, if you will. But are there are there little I mean, we're gonna talk about nudges at some point. It was inevitable. Are there sort of nudges that go along with it? So one thing that people have noticed is that they sort of constantly kept changing the the colour scheme and branding of uh, of the, you know, the little chevrons in the in the government press conferences so is that is that sort of thing the little nudges that they're trying to see to get the message to stick
0: i, I don't i'd be surprised if that's um, has any kind of cunning plan behind it um i mean i think i think this is not really a moment for um for for nudges with regard to the big behavioral shifts i mean clearly if there's any way we can find ways of getting people getting us all uh, to to remember to wash our hands more effectively and also not to touch our faces this is really a hard thing <laughs> that appears to be quite important but something that's really difficult to actually stop then, yeah,
2: i had no idea i love touching my face so much but it's really hard <laughs> all the
0: time <laughs> yeah it, it, this isn't a this is a, a case i think for for nudges i mean behavioral change in general when you need drastic behavioral change you need drastic action, you need you know, drastic messages and, and you need to have you know, a, a kind of uh, you know, a clear set of, of rules we have to follow and, and we'll follow them. It's not really a case of just making things slightly easier or, or more salient to people. So nudges are more about you know, making one option option you want people to choose, just a bit easier rather than harder. Uh, you're making making the, the bad option less available. So just making it hard to you know, find the, the very unhealthy foods and easy to find healthy foods, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that's you know, that's perfectly valid, but this is not really a, a situation where we're trying to sort of prod people in a particular direction with, with, to slightly increase their probability of doing the right thing. We're really trying to collectively change our behavior in a radical way. So I think this is a it's a moment for um clear direction, which is conscious as well. So the other thing about some nudges is that they operate in a in a way that we're not consciously aware of. We just find it easier to do something, so we do it more often. But we're not necessarily thinking about why that's the case. Or we do something by default because we, you know, we, we just don't bother to click any other button, so we end up selecting something. that's a, you know, and, and hopefully that's the thing we've selected is a good thing. That's that's another nudge. But this is not the moment for that, I think. This is a moment for sort of very clear, explicit, consciously accessible Uh, and simple uh, changes in our behavioral rules.
1: I was going to ask earlier whether certain individuals and personalities were more kind of likely to adopt new behaviors more quickly. But now that we've moved into the kind of the bigger picture, I wonder, on a kind of global scale, has there been any evidence to suggest that certain kinds of societies or cultures are quicker to adopt these massive social changes than others? Is there a certain kind of set up for how a country or a society operates that makes them more likely to work more effectively as a, as a whole, I guess?
0: Yeah, I think actually, I, I don't think this is particularly clear at the moment. I don't think we have enough comparative data, data across uh, different countries to be really clear what's going on. I do think countries with very different you know, levels of democracy and very different political systems, have all, many of them have done a remarkably good job. So I don't think it's um, uh, it's, it's not that there's only a certain kind of um, political setup of which which will uh, allow these 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 <laughs> things to happen. It seems to be quite general, uh, but I do think the the things that are going to be are likely to be important are uh, questions of trust in the government and clarity of the message. So the two things I was talking about before, really, the if, if it's not really clear what people are supposed to do, they will struggle to do it. I don't think that's actually a major limiting factor in most countries. Well, I, well, I should I should actually preface that by saying, but it has been a bit. In the past, because um, in some countries there have been quite mixed messages about is this a serious problem and should we be worrying about it and so on. So if you don't have a kind sort of a strong sense of um, clarity of, of the message, then that's you know that's one problem. And connected to that is the is this sense of the social contract being something we're all in we're, we're all buying into. Um, so I think that's probably more important and probably you know, something that that I think actually is potentially more tricky, for example, in southern, southern parts of the Midwest and the South in the US, there does seem to be some difficulty both uh, in both getting clarity of the message from some parts of government, but also there are you know, clearly some sections of the population who do not really feel this is a social contract they want to buy into. There's not a sense of, yeah, these are the new rules, but of course they're sensible rules. We all think they're reasonable, and this is because they're going to have these these these, these good effects. A, there are certainly a fraction of the population who are suspicious of those rules and don't really want to follow them. And I think that that's really the problem: It's the problem of 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 of, of the fact that we all buy in buy into this new new story, and where you have political polarization, groups with very different interests, mutual suspicion weak trust in government. I mean, that's where you'd expect, well, let's see in the long term how, how it plays out, but that's where you'd expect to see problems.
1: I kind of can't help but feel as a behavioural scientist, this must be an opportunity to kind of observe a unique situation in terms of human behaviour. Like, has there been anything even remotely comparable to this since the Second World War? And our behavioural scientists taking I guess taking advantage sounds too negative, but like making the most of this opportunity to learn about how people do respond to these kind of once-in-a-generation crises.
0: Yeah, no, the, the amounts of work that's going on in behavioral science at the moment on this is absolutely massive. It's, uh, yeah, I think, I think everybody's recognizing that this is an extraordinary, extraordinary time. And very important, it's very important to understand how to do a good job now. So there's a sense that we actually have to put together bits of research which are quick enough uh, to be relevant to, to, to actually improving how we handle this crisis. But also, clearly, there's, there's the longer term question of how we deal with future crises. And it's entirely likely that there will be other crises quite likely co- caused by further future pandemics. So the ability to to understand how people react in extreme circumstances, where they have to change behaviour, is it's, 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 it's incredibly, incredibly interesting and important. I mean, of course, in, in a more local context, that people have extraordinary adaptations to make in their lives all the time. I mean, one one extreme example would be um, sort of civil wars, of which there are many around the world. I mean, they, they require terrible, terrible adjustments to people's lives, uh, but you know, people do adapt, adapt their lives dramatically and will be locked down in, in, in basements for very long periods of time on very limited amounts of food and so on. And so it's not the case that people, but I mean, there's not lots of experience of human beings dramatically adapting their lives to, to terrible circumstances. And also, of course, individuals are having to change their lives all ki- in all kinds of dramatic ways. For example, if they're diagnosed with a disease, or have a weakened immune system or whatever it may be. So we can study that. And, and th- these are very important, um, very important, examples i think but what's unique about this i mean it's, a, it's a literally a global problem everybody around the world is is having to wrestle with the same problem at the same time that is very very strange and, and, and uncharted territory i think
1: coming out of that research you mentioned are there any kind of messages from the behavioral science community as to how we do prepare better in the future is there anything we didn't do this time around that would be smart to remember next time something rolls around yeah.
0: I think the, the lesson I, I'd have so far, and I think the, the research that's going on at the moment, probably it, right now we don't have anything, yes, you know, we don't have any staggering, staggering generalizations that radically change our thinking. Although I think I hope we do once once the dust has settled. But I think the big lesson from the science of decision making, in particular, is that it's extremely difficult to make complex decisions on the fly. There's many examples of this, but. A lot of the, uh, the the work that's most relevant looks at things like, um, so a- a airline safety or um, military safety, dealing with fire incidents, things of this kind. And the sort of classic disasters, the cases where it all goes horribly wrong, are so often cases where people are trying to solve a difficult, complex problem on the fly, and the, and it goes horribly wrong when they have the wrong model of the problem. So under pressure, we tend to try to rapidly work out what sort of problem is this usually by connecting it to some previous problem we've come across before. And then we then use that as our template. So in the case of um, military disasters, often uh, the military disaster arises because you think the enemy's in one place, and it's actually in some other place. So you, you charge off att- attacking them in one place, and it takes absolutely ages to realize, no, no, actually, they seem to be all the fires coming from somewhere else and we're getting decimated. Um, oh, I guess our assumption was wrong, but it's very hard to change assumptions midway through. So once you're in the battle, once you've got your plan and you start to operate it, if you're wrong, you're, you're, you're in deep trouble. And the more you're improvising, the more you're in trouble. So I think having a very clear plan from the beginning about what you're going to do under different circumstances is absolutely crucial. You've got to have a sense of you know, these are the rules. You know, we, do, we, we, we do this, and if this starts to happen, we stop doing this, and we do this other thing. You've got to think all this. You've got to basically um, wargame all this before you start. Because if you try and do it as you're going along, you're almost certainly going to get sucked into the, the wrong model and you won't be able to escape. In the, in the heat of the moment, it's very difficult to change one's perspective. In this case, I mean, obviously, the, the, the details will be much clearer when we were able to look backwards. But in this case, it may be the case that lots of people in the science and policy community, as, as appears to be the case, thought COVID-19's a bit like a flu. And we know how to deal with flus. Um, they can be pretty terrible. But we had flus, flus in the past. You can't really suppress them. They're going to run across the population, and we've got to have a strategy for managing that in a way that causes as little damage as possible. Now, it may, be, it may turn out that that was not the right model to have in mind, and this is actually a disease we should have been trying to suppress. But in any case, we set off on a strategy which made reasonably good sense for, for dealing with flus, but then we reverse course. But it's very hard to reverse course mid-flow. Mid mm. You see the whole world through that from that lens. Or another example, which would be relevant to the, some of the early political discussions, is the sort of storm in a teacup metaphor. You can think, ah, I know, this is like, um, it's like one of those other diseases that never came to our shores in any big way. So it's, yeah, so, so it's like SARS or MERS or yeah, some, some other disease, or Ebola, which is like all of these are really bad. Yeah, But if you're a policymaker sitting in, in London or New York, you might think, ah, yeah, these things come up and everyone gets worried about them, but they turn out turn out not to be an issue for us. We didn't really worry. And that, if that's your model, then you can go on for ages with that model thinking, yeah, nothing bad has happened yet. No, nothing bad, bad has happened yet. It's very hard to break you out of that. So I think it's really, really crucial to have a clear set of criteria, which say, you know, if this kind of thing starts to happen, you know, start now getting your protective equipment, uh, start now um, getting some testing, as soon as you get a new virus, start now, you know, building, building a test at scale for that, because you just never know whether it's going to be coming your way or not. If these things have been really carefully planned beforehand, that planning can be done in a really thoughtful, careful way where you think, well, it might be a storm in a teacup, or it might be a flu, or it might be something where we have to suppress it because it would just be too terrible to let it run. We don't know at this point. You have to be able to think about all those possibilities and work out a plan and then implement your plan. You can't be you can't be busking it as you're going along. That's the, that's the uh, big lesson for decision-making is if you're trying to make a complex decision in the heat of the moment, you're almost certainly going to get locked into a, a particular mental set, a particular way of seeing the world and not be able to break out of it.
1: And I suppose that's exemplified quite nicely by the countries that had experienced kind of outbreaks like SARS, like you mentioned before, I think certain bits of Asia, certain countries responded really effectively, very early on in the process and kind of, yeah, were much more successful in those early stages.
0: Yeah, it's it's a bit like um, sort of a, a, a more trivial level. It's a bit like the advice for doing an exam, which is you want to do your thinking before you go into the exam. <laughs> <But> you <laughs> don't know what, what the answer to the question is. You don't want to walk into the exam and think, crap well, that question's got me there." I'll have a. You know, <laughs> have a uh, <laughs> it's like at that point. <laughs> oh
2: no! Now you just wing it. That's how I got my uh, three Ds uh, at A okay. level. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very satisfying. <laughs> um, I think I want to ask about like so if that's the, the if that's the lesson from coronavirus for sort of decision makers and, and policy makers and stuff, what just think the impact will be on the social contract as we've been talking about? Is, is that relatively elastic and will it go back to the way it was pre coronavirus pretty quickly? Or do you think will people will people's behaviour, you know, will people be more wary of going on the tube? Will they will it be hesitant to sort of reacclimatize to to normal life, whatever that is?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a very good question. I don't think we we really know. Um, I think it partly depends how long long, long the various aspects of the lockdown last. Uh, because the longer these things go on, of course, the more we're going to get used to the fact that we steer clear of people um, because we haven't been close to people for... Yeah. If it were a year where we were still distancing, I'm sure we won't be in full lockdown for a year, but if, were, if we were social distancing to some degree for a year, that's a long time. We really might find it very uncomfortable to be close to people after that. Um, having said that, the, the fact that we can make this transition uh, in one direction, I suppose it implies we can probably make it in the other direction to some degree as well. So I don't, I'm not too worried that there are things that, that we, if we really value them, that we can't go back to and that we won't go back to. Although, I mean, it's certainly, it's a slightly weird thought that you look at sort of pictures of football matches and (laughs) parties and you see all these people close together. It does make you think, oh my goodness, that's just a total vector of disease. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's It's quite
2: freaky. (laughs) I find when
1: I'm watching TV shows now on Netflix, if there's like a party scene or a scene in a pub or something like that, it's already kicked in that I'm now like, ah, the good old days. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: No, my, my instinct is to see them and go oh god get away from each other what are you doing
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. but i think i think that, there are, that some of those things we, we will get we will get used to again probably reasonably quickly because we as soon as we see other people doing things doing things we'll start to do them ourselves they'll see us we'll start to renormalize. i suspect that won't be too difficult although uh, probably a little uncomfortable at first and how, whether whether other behaviours and social contract changes will be longer lasting is not, not clear to me, but I think there could be some quite big ones. I mean, for example, about you know, norms for working and indeed yeah. norms for things like you know traveling to meetings and so on, uh, and also norms for social interaction with family. Um, a lot of family have obviously started using Zoom or equivalent for the first time to keep in touch, and that may actually be something that becomes completely standardized and you know starts to displace some other... You know, phone calls or visits or, or whatever we, we we don't really know yet but I think the hope would be that we've explored through this horrible shock and it is a terrible terrible thing uh, we would have explored as you said of behaviors some of which we might actually want to stick with and the ones we want to stick with will probably stick with them the ones that we don't really like they'll gradually drift back so I expect people will still go back to um, parties and pubs and, and football matches hopefully but there'll be other things that, that actually people prefer. And, and maybe people will work a lot more from home. Maybe people will keep in touch much better by video meetings. And you know, maybe there are all kinds of things that we'll, we'll do better. I hope, hope so. I hope we actually create something out of this uh, in a way of changing our behavior, which leaves us with some positives because we've had enough negatives. It's been
2: really, really interesting. Thanks so much for coming on, well, Nick. Well, thank it's you very much. For
0: having, and, uh, yeah, I've re- really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you very much for listening to episode one of series two of the Plant of Science podcast. That was a fascinating chat with Nick Chater. How did you find it, Jim?
2: Yeah, I thought that was that was very, very interesting. I mean, the amount of changes that we've all experienced in the last, you know, few months or whatever, it's yeah. It is wild and very interesting to hear about how it all happens in our brains.
1: Yep, and uh, Pint of Science Festival itself, obviously not immune to these changes. So uh, those of you who have been following the progression of events will know that large-scale festivals are certainly not something to be holding this summer. So Pint of Science Festival is delayed. Uh, It will not be taking place in May. However, there will be regular updates from the Pint of Science team. So if you want to be the first to hear about when it will be taking place, sign up on pintofscience.co.uk to the mailing list and you will get updates. However, of course, there is one thing that will be consistent over summer, and that is the Pint of Science podcast.
2: Yes, it will indeed, yes. Make sure to stay tuned. You can get all your Pint of Science Oh, wow
1: he's <laughs> like a banter fountain
2: <laughs> overflowing oh, with God. wit oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> we've all been
1: indoors for a very long time no
2: honestly i my brain has just like fully stopped working like i think it's been fried by the amount of just like pure screen time with no outdoor time it's it's really Yep. um you could get your pint of science fix online with the podcast yes indeed there you go that's, I was, that's all i wanted to I think say you did think you
0: said it okay. i think sam can okay. work his magic on that <laughs> i hope so